2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a time in the week when I get together with my friend Susie Dent and we talk about words and language because we're two people who just, well, we love words. We love language. We know that words are everything. It's the way we have to communicate because at the moment we're not really being allowed to hug one another. Even smiling at one another is a bit difficult if you're doing it via Zoom. You're not sure if your picture's pixelating. So it's got to all be done with words. Do you know, Susie, what was the first word you ever spoke? What was the first word that came out of your mouth?
1: I wish it was something incredibly impressive and word-based, you know, or dictionary-based at least. But no, I think it was just the dada.
2: (laughs) I hate to disappoint you. How about you? Dada is the most uh, familiar word. People say dada, interestingly, before they say mama. They
1: do, don't they? It it may
2: be that the d is an easier thing to say. Mm. There's a delightful story that I was told by Joan Plowright. Joan Plowright was married mm-hmm. to the great actress of Laurence Olivier. And they had, they have a son called Richard Olivier. And when he was born, he was exactly the same age as the uh, son of Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden. Mm-hmm. And Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright knew Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, principally because Lord Snowden was a theatrical photographer. And Joan Plowright and was quite excited, and said to Princess Margaret, you know our boys are the same age, I'm very excited because Richard has just said his very first word, his very first word, and it was da-da-da, And Princess Margaret replied, oh, yes, well, you know, David said his very first word too. And Joan Plurie said, oh, what was it? And Princess Margaret replied, chandelier. <laughs> That's perfect. Isn't that (laughs) amusing? Yeah. And maintained. Uh, I asked many years later, because I was lucky enough to know Tony Snowden, who was a great photographer and a very charming, slightly dangerous man. Uh, I said to him, is there any truth in this story at all? And he said, it's quite possible. David was in this sort of cot. In Kensington Palace. And above the cot, other people have mobiles, but there were these, you know, wonderful chandeliers. So it's quite possible that the nanny was saying, oh, look up there. You know, look at the chandelier. So it's quite possible. It's so
1: funny. It's not a word that many of us (laughs) use these days, because obviously we don't have them. And I remember watching an episode of The Apprentice, where one of their tasks was to go and find a particular chandelier. But in fact, they read it as Chandelier. What's a chandelier? <laughs> and they spent the entire programme trying to work out what this was. So there you go, worlds apart. I've been enjoying watching The Crown recently, actually, and rather alarmingly i have completely fallen in love with Prince Philip, played by Matt Smith. So okay. I can totally believe that. I love that story.
2: Having written biographies of various members of the royal family, I always say approach The Crown with a little bit of caution, bearing in mind that it is a drama. Of course it is, yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes on the facts, it invents scenes. I mean, you know, Peter Morgan brilliant writer but he wasn't actually there so he's having to as it were scrabble around and and think what might have happened and so Uh, it should
1: be really for a drama
2: shouldn't it I'm watching it with particular interest and it's relevant to what I hope we can talk about today which is believe it or not fabrics and textiles I'm watching it with interest because I love clothes and I love particularly the I think the brilliant way they've recreated some of the costumes Mm -hmm. the dresses and I'm a bit of a Diana uh freak When it comes mm-hmm. to her style. And the reason I'm sitting glued to the screen is she is going to pop up, I believe, in one of these episodes wearing one of my jumpers. Seriously? Seriously.
1: How amazing. Because
2: in the 19 people over the world, what's lovely about our podcast, and we're in a state of high excitement this week because we've just hit our fourth millionth download. Oh, which is thank fantastic. you so much, everyone, for that. Thank you. And we know it's people around the world listening. So I want to explain to people who don't know really who we are. Susie Dent is a distinguished lexicographer, but she also appears on TV a great deal in this country, uh, notably on a programme called Countdown, which goes out every day, where she uh, sits in Dictionary Corner and tells us all about words and language. And there's a comedy version too. And I appear on television as well. And I began appearing on television in the 1970s and 80s wearing colourful knitwear. And my jumpers were designed and created by a man called George Hosler. And we created a label together, a knitwear label called Giles and George, which has recently been revived. Anyway, our jumpers were sold in Kensington High Street, which is a fashionable street very near Kensington Palace. And one day, Diana, Princess of Wales, wandered into the shop and bought a jumper, which says on the front, I'm a luxury. And on the back, it says, few can afford (laughs) and she wore this jumper around Kensington Palace and I think (laughs) rather teased Prince Charles because they were still married at the time with it I'm a luxury Uh few can afford anyway I think this (laughs) jumper is going to feature in the crown and we've revived it fantastic It's rather fun. And so if anyone's going to Selfridges, they can buy it there, but they can buy it online as well. Giles and George is the name of the brand. So I love jumpers. I love knitwear. Do you like colourful clothes? I'm going to look out for that. I've just come back, actually,
1: from three days of Countdown Recordings. And we had sitting next to me in the corner Prue Leith, who, again, for those overseas, she's a celebrated cook. She doesn't like to call herself a chef because she's not head of a kitchen, she says. And she is wonderfully into colour. And she actually was telling us all, you know, it's ridiculous to say that any woman, as she grows older, should avoid colour. You know, that flamboyance is actually unbecoming and mutton-dressed Islam, etc. She said you should embrace it. And she always wears the most vivid, vibrant, sumptuous colours. And you know me, Charles. I mean, I tend to like greys and black. So I tend to go for kind of classical colours. I don't really like purples and pinks on Me. I I like them on other people, but not really on me. But yes, I have textiles in my family because my father was a textile agent. Uh My sister went into fashion. In fact, both my sisters went into fashion. So it very much runs through the blood. What does a textile agent do? A textile agent essentially buys cloth. They're the sort of middle person, I suppose. They buy cloth from the mills. In this case, my dad used to buy them from Italian mills and then sell them on to manufacturers. But he had a great, or still does, has a great feel for cloth. So whenever I'm wearing anything, he will feel it and tell me exactly where it's come from and also whether it's cheap.
2: How brilliant.
1: (laughs) So it's been very close to my heart, but I obviously went in a very different direction.
2: Well, we've discussed clothes and fashion before, so if that's your bag, you can download that episode. I think this is episode 89, so there are lots of episodes to download. That one was called Testiculate. don't know why we called it Testiculate. I don't know. Sounds
1: well, a- obviously, because we were talking bollocks, that's pretty much what it means.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you want us talking about clothes and fashion, go to Testiculate. But today we're going to talk about materials, fabric, the stuff, literally the stuff behind the clothes. Stuff means fabric, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does, and stuffing too. I mean, so many words have textiles at their heart. So you just reminded me of the word farce, which actually was stuffing. It was a metaphor of clothing because farces were kind of interludes in plays, etc. They were little comedy inserts, if you like. And so, if you go for a farci, something meat farci in French, it's stuffed. But you know, text, even text itself. When we send a text message, we are unconsciously making a link with textile because we weave our words just as we weave cloths and they have a context with which they are woven together so you know bombast if you were bombastic you were full again of that idea of stuffing because bombast was literally the padding with which men would kind of fill out their beautiful sumptuous waistcoats so lying beneath so many of our english words is the idea of cloth i think i can give you loads more perhaps we can come to those later
2: i want us to come just if you can unravel stuff a bit further for Mm. me i mean we now talk about stuff and nonsense and we talk about possessions as being my stuff but the root of the word stuff is what and what did it first mean
1: well, it came to us from the French estoff, which was material, furniture, that kind of thing. But there's so many relatives there. So the Italian stoffer was a piece of rich textile fabric. So you're right. But actually, the earliest meaning of stuff in English was reinforcement in a military sense. So a body of soldiers, an additional force that came along to help you. And then very, very soon. Well, to be honest, it's very difficult when you're a lexicographer. These may be concurrent. We're just talking about the records that have been found to date. In poetry, it meant the quilted material that was worn under chain mail, or it could in fact be serving in place of armour. So it was always quilted. And you're right, it was that idea of padding, either through extra support and reinforcement or for the use of clothing, manufacture of clothing.
2: So when we say stuff and nonsense, the origin of that really is like padding. You're filling the air with stuff and nonsense. Yes, You're giving padding. It's the same connotation as a farce.
1: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like thing. I think we've talked about thing before, which once had such importance and was used for sort of grand assemblies in Viking get togethers. And yet a thing these days can be any old thing.
2: But thing has become potent again, hasn't
1: it? Yes, the thing. It's the thing. I remember you saying that. Is that a thing? Yeah, that was a great observation. And it's the same with stuff, actually, except I don't think... we, We have the stuff of life, which obviously is the essence, which is quite important. But otherwise, I think it's taken a gradual decline.
2: Is there a difference between stuff and fabric? Yes, there is. Stuff is padding, Stuff is what you stuff into things, whereas fabric yeah. is... Is that to do with fabrication, things that it's are basically made? It's to do made. with making, yes. So yes. if
1: you trace fabric all the way back to its very beginnings, we're just looking at here. So the Latin fabrica was somebody who worked in metal, stone or wood. And again, it passed through all sorts of Romance languages before it came into English. But fabric was a product of skilled workmanship, if you like. And it could even mean a building or a sort of really important machine or an engine. And only later did it come to mean a textile fabric. So something that was, again, worked on and brought together with great skill.
2: Do you have a specific fabric that is your delight is there something that you see or feel like silk or velvet that makes you feel oh yes I feel good in this today
1: it has to be cashmere I'm afraid it has to be cashmere which I don't have very much of it's got that sort of you know luxury feel to me
2: cashmere is a a wool isn't it from a goat
1: from a goat exactly in cashmere yes and I'm hoping that it's a kindly obtained, but it comes from Kashmir in the Western Himalayans, but it is from the Kashmir goat, but also I think the wild goat of Western China. Yes, and I always manage to shrink everything I have of Kashmir. So the other thing I like is the feeling of chenille, which actually goes back to Latin for a hairy dog. It's linked to canis through very kind of strange convoluted root. So canis, canicula etc gave us chenille. How about you? I think you're a silk person, aren't you?
2: well no i'm not okay years ago many years ago when i was at university i firstly became aware of fabric when i encountered an actress called diana quick we were contemporaries at oxford university in the 1960s mm. again our international listeners I may know her name. She's a wonderful actress. She played
1: Julia in Brideshead Revisited, didn't she? She was brilliant.
2: That's exactly how she came to international fame. Yeah. And when I met her, I was 19 and she was 21. And we met for a drink in a pub in Oxford. And she was wearing a leather miniskirt. Uh-huh. And the fact that I'm talking about this 50 years <laughs> later shows you the impact this outfit had on me. Okay. I'd never seen anything so... Exotic or dare I say it, erotic in my life, yeah. but it was disconcerting and it was wonderful on her. But I've never really been keen on leather, but there was a period I think it was probably that period when leather was considered rather sexy to wear. There was a TV series called The Avengers, yeah, and I think that Diana the Rigg. Diana yes. Rigg and Anna Blackman they wore leather in that. Mm. So, leather, what's the origin of leather?
1: I think it's Germanic. So the German for leather is "leder." So oh, I imagine leder, that it came. Yes. Yeah, leather trousers never been my thing. I have to say.
2: I, do you know? I don't know why people want to wear leather trousers. They just don't work on men or women. They I don't. think they just don't work. But silk. People, you think I'm a silk person because you see me. I just imagine you
1: with a cravat, but then I thought, actually, maybe not. Maybe not a cravat person.
2: I can see why you would say that. My late friend, Nicholas Parsons, who died in February of this year, he loved to wear a cravat. My hero, Noel Coward, famously would wear silk pyjamas and a silk dressing gown, cigarette in a cigarette holder. Mm. But I find... It's all a bit shiny and you slip around. I can't bear silk it's sheets. It's
1: not warm either. I mean, you know what I'm like. I'm always cold. I need something warm, which is probably why I go for cashmere. Yeah, you um, need
2: Winsett gym gym Jams is what you need. <laughs> thermals. S- thermals at all times. Silk. Where does the word silk come from then?
1: So silk is quite an interesting one, I have to say. And, I, you know, the sort of thing I love about what I do is that the most everyday words will surprise me. And I will think, why did I not ever look up? this. And so this was quite a recent discovery for me. And it goes back to the ancient world when silk came overland to Europe from China and Tibet. And the Greeks and the Romans called the people who lived in these far away, exotic, unknown lands Seres, Ceres, S-E-R-E-S. And again, I know it's quite difficult to see that that gave us silk, but you have to kind of trace it a bit like, you know, these wonderful exotic imports themselves. You have to trace their winding path. And then eventually from Ceres, we got silk. But yeah, I honestly didn't know that until about a month ago.
2: Well, isn't that nice to think you're still learning things? All the time. All My favourite fabric probably is velvet. I love velvet. I love brushing it one way and then brushing it the other way and seeing the change.
1: Do you have velvet I, I, jackets?
2: Yeah, I do. But the problem is they go off so quickly. You right. know, You need a new velvet outfit all the time. Did I ever tell you about being in the wings at the Royal Albert Hall with Frank Sinatra? Does this <laughs> ring would a bell? I remember. No. Well, I was sent to interview Frank Sinatra on his last tour when he came to the Royal Albert Hall to sing. And he was quite an old man by then. And they explained to me, you're going to be talking to Mr Sinatra after the show, but you can stand in the wings to see him go on. But uh, you mustn't come within 10 metres of Mr Sinatra. He concentrates before going on stage. So you can stand there, but don't go within 10 metres of him. Is that understood? So I stood in the wings and Sinatra arrived in the wings, about to go on the stage. The orchestra was already playing the come on music. And there was Frank Sinatra looking exactly like Frank Sinatra. It was incredible. He was shorter, I suppose, than I imagined, a bit Mm. stockier, but it was Frank Sinatra. There was something electric about him. There was charisma. Yeah. And I thought, this is amazing. And then I realised that he didn't have any trousers on. He was standing there (laughs) in his shirt, wearing a bow tie, but in his shirt with boxer shorts Mm. and I think what the Americans call suspenders. What we would call, Braces. you know, to, to, no, no, oh. um, they'd kept keeping his socks up. Um, oh, okay. okay. things to keep his socks up. So he was wearing yeah, shoes mean. and socks. That's not a particularly sexy image uh, Well the music was playing And he was moving towards the edge of the stage I thought this man's going to go onto the stage At the Royal Albert Hall Thousands of people there And I'm the only person here in the wings This poor man is going to go on the stage In his underpants (laughs) And I thought well maybe he's older than You know he's older than I Oh good has he gone a bit Has Has he lost it Is this going to be the most humiliating moment In Frank Sinatra's life And I thought I cannot let this happen And literally, as he was about to walk onto the stage, I'm afraid I decided I had to stop him. So I began to walk towards Frank Sinatra, ready, if necessary, to do a rugby dive to prevent him going onto that stage. And as I was about to throw myself upon him, two minders lifted me out of the way, and Frank Sinatra's dresser stepped towards Uh. him with trousers. He stepped into the trousers, he then put on the jacket, and he turned towards me. And he said to me, those guys out there have paid a lot of money to see me. I wear a new suit for every show I ever perform.
1: Wow. They deserve
2: the best. They paid for it. They're going to get it. And then he walked on. It wow. It was amazing.
1: I'm more impressed that anyone can actually put on a pair of trousers whilst wearing shoes. It's because- a, uh- Having tried that myself, I have just, yes. He he had
2: very small feet. They were very shiny little Ah. patent leather shoes. And obviously they just did this. And it's true. He wore a different suit for every performance, a handmade dinner suit for every show. And now I know that. I've watched endless recordings of him and he looks so sharp. Yeah. At every performance, there's never a crease. He has never sat down in those trousers. <laughs> that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Around
1: the world, there must be thousands of Frank Sinatra suits. Which oh, is, yes.
2: Yeah. Oh, let's start an online shop selling. Old, old, <laughs> Look, you don't need <laughs> another <laughs> online shop. Um, what, and so, that's an amazing story. Yes. Now, I think part of a dinner suit is made of satin. Yes. The stripe down the side. What's the origin of satin?
1: Do you know, we're not completely sure about this one. I'm looking at the OED etymology now, and it says sometimes taken to be from Zetun, the Arabic name of a city in China, but perhaps rather from another word, Zetun, meaning olive, being so-called on account of its shiny luster, like an olive. Oh, like a polished olive. I can see that. Yeah. So the jury is out. I must just touch on mohair because my youngest, for a long time, thought mohair was the hair of a mo and asked me what a mo <laughs> was, which I thought was lovely. <laughs> that goes back to Arabic and meaning hair of the goat, mukaya. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly.
2: A lot of things are named after places. I mean, satin, there's the argument there. Of course, Kashmir, you mentioned famously denim. Denim yes. is Dinim. from Nîm. Yes, jeans I. from Genoa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where, where's corduroy come from? Cordoba. Corduroy.
1: corduroy um, <laughs> yes, people think it is actually, you know, the cord of the king. And it's such a lovely, ah. yeah, a lovely idea. But oh, du
2: roi. Oh, how clever.
1: But actually that doesn't exist in French because in French the word for the cloth is velours à cot. So we actually don't know. Duroy? Is of unknown origin. I mean, you know, maybe we just decided to come up with a bit of French ourselves, which we do sometimes. I'm going to give you a couple of other ones, which are quite nice. Um, Seersucker, which is that kind of striped cloth, perhaps not so fashionable these days, but that is a corruption in Indian corruption, actually, of a Persian word meaning milk and sugar because of the kind of slightly smooth and then puckered surfaces of the stripes. So it's quite detailed, that one. And one more, actually, that does go back to a place, and that's damask. Ah. Damask is from Damascus. Oh, very good. Believe it or not, which you might not have expected. And it's probably time for a break now, but I want to tell you about how taffeta is somehow related to the tabby cat.
2: Oh, we ought to discover that. Give okay, me a minute, so I'm going to do some ironing. My dainty double damask napkins are needing a little pressing. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Here we are again. And before the break, Susie was about to tell me all about taffeta and how it's got something to do with a cat.
1: Well, sort of tabby cat. You'd never expect that to have a relationship with textiles. But many centuries ago, there was an Arab prince called Atab and he had a palace in Baghdad and the area around it was called Al-Atabiyah in his honour. And it was a centre of textile manufacture and a cloth made there was Atabi. And this really rich silk material became known in English as tabby. And it was a really fashionable cloth for gentlemen's waistcoats, particularly the the striped ones, really. And it seems to have struck some people that these gentlemen with their kind of striped tummies looked a little like cats which is why we talk about tabby cats today it goes all the way back to that ancient cloth which was you know in the city of this arab prince and taffeta is a persian word that we think has some sort of intimate connection with that going back a long way which means Twisted, woven. And that fabric definitely also originated in Atabiya, which is now, I think, in Baghdad. So, really strange, security stories that these have. But tabby cats, yeah, all, all to do with that kind of rich, striped material of old.
2: Well, cloth as well has been woven into our language in all sorts of ways. I mean, you mentioned yeah. texting earlier. And I was thinking mm. about, you know, I'm cottoning onto this cottoning onto that I mean that must be to do with the spinning and the cotton industry is it yeah
1: yes frustrating we haven't got any direct evidence of that but yes you would have thought that perhaps it was to do with spooling cotton upon a bobbin etc or even you know when you have a little stray bit of cotton it just always clings to the material that you're wearing you always just find this little piece of cotton that somehow sticks to your clothes that may be again to do with if you cotton onto something you kind of stick to it because Uh... you sort of comprehend it but as you say so many others. I mean, ambition and candidate we've talked about before. Candidate goes back to the white togas that Roman candidates seeking office would wear and they would walk around in order to solicit votes. And and so it's linked to ambition because ambire was to walk around. Succinct more closely linked to clothing. I think we might have talked about this in our testiculating episode, but succinct is all to do with the belt with which Romans would tuck in their toga. So they'd wear a cinctus, which was a belt, and they would pull it up so that the toga wouldn't sweep along the dirty ground. And so succinct first meant tucked up of a toga. And when it's tucked up, of course, it becomes a little bit more concise. Heckling is another one. Did we ever talk about the, no. the um, origin of heckling?
2: No, I've been mean the victim of it in my time. I want to hear the origin
1: was really strange. It takes us back to the kind of legalisation of trade unions, I guess, in the early 19th century, when, you know, growing numbers were joining the fight for better pay, better working conditions, etc. And sort of unlikely byproduct of trade unionism is, in fact, heckling, because it's said to have originated with a particularly vociferous, vocal, shall we say, union in Scotland. And what happened there was a heckling shop. Now, a heckling shop was a place in the textile industry where knots and dirt would be removed from flax or hemp fibers. So this is before the process became mechanised. And a heckle or a hackle, as it was also called, was a steel comb used for smoothing out this knotted material and one such heckling shop in the Scottish town of Dundee was incredibly ill-ventilated, really unpleasant, you know, backbreaking work and in fact Robert Burns was among those who carried out this hour upon hour of heckling in the establishment and apparently by 1880s, these people had had enough in the heckling shop and they established a union to fight for better conditions. Using their strength in numbers, it said they did a fair amount of shouting and they got a reputation for activism. And it's through that link with the heckling shop where they were combing out textiles and fabric and their kind of you know shouting for better working conditions that heckling transferred over into this idea of shouting and clamouring for for their voices to be heard.
2: Oh. I know, it's strange Well look, this is a deep, deep subject and if we haven't touched on aspects of it you'd like us to do you simply get in touch with purple at somethingelse.com that's something without the G somethingelse.com send us your questions and queries and Susie will do her best to answer and I will try and chip in if I've got something to add so- Oh no, you
1: have to chip in with things like your Frank Sinatra stories who well, can ever compete with well, that? I'm
2: going ch- to chip in immediately with a question that was sent to me but I think it was meant for us it was sent to me on twitter we're both on twitter i'm yeah. at gilesb one what are you what's your twitter address
1: at suzy underscore dent
2: very good and somebody uh, tweeted me to say this week uh, that they last weekend went commando and they wondered what the origin of that uh. was going commando it's a very bizarre thing I mean, do you ever do that Um, You've heard the expression.
1: I have once or twice gone commando if I'm wearing trousers where you just get a VPL, a visible panty line, once or twice. So going
2: commando means, for those who don't know the expression, means (laughs) not wearing underwear.
1: It means not wearing underwear. I had this very discussion with Rachel Riley, who I work with on Countdown this week. Now, it was popularised by friends, definitely. So friends, the incredibly you know, brilliant sitcom that ran for years. But its use actually predates that. And although there's no reference to actually commando soldiers going without underwear, I think the idea is that you're tough and you can kind of tough it out and, you know, you're full of kind of, I don't know, vigour and bravado. And somehow that was then transferred to not wearing any underwear. So make of that what you will. But it definitely predates Friends, but I think that's what popularised it.
2: They're good. Well, uh, <laughs> let's not go any further there. Let's put our, <laughs> fold up our textiles, put them back in the bottom drawer and turn to... We've had so many letters and emails. I call them letters. They're not letters at all. They're either texts or they're emails. No coffee. We've had a couple of late contenders for our call for a term to describe the feeling of disappointment when you're expecting another sip of your coffee or bite of your biscuit to realise there's no more left. Codger nominated the word... Nostalgia, oh, I quite like, oh, that. I like that. Nostalgia. Well, that's really sort of recollection for. I think nostalgia is more remembering wonderful meals. Simon Graham offered a double dealer, a double header rather. When the cup is unexpectedly empty, café au nay Get it? <laughs> café au <laughs> Very good. And when the cup is unexpectedly full. Café O'Yay.
1: Yay. Uh, (laughs) That's excellent. I like that one.
2: You know what? um, (laughs) They call it Spanish coffee in France. You know what they call Spanish coffee in France? No. Café O'Lay.
1: Uh-oh. Boom, boom. I have a lovely email from Alan Garbutt, who put up with... Our podcast during lockdown, he says he's been perambulating around his village with his wonderful Westie. So that's how he listens to us. Thanks, Alan. He says that he has become very busy recently as the result of the birth of two lockdown grandchildren. Congratulations. He said, indeed, in my late mother's terminology, I have been running around like a blue-arsed fly. Ah. Where does this come from? Is it just a Yorkshire phrase or even just a West Riding phrase? Well, the answer is no, it's not regionally specific. It's been around for a little while. And uh, the idea is anyone who's had a blue bottle in their room over the summer just knows how really frantic, constant movement. You know, they're just very annoying, aren't they? But if you're running around like a blue wasp fly, you're literally buzzing from one place to another constantly. So that's simply the idea there.
2: Very good. I like that one
1: as she does just to go back he refers to the west ridings we did a episode recently didn't we on place names and we concentrated on london but in the new year we will be moving further afield and looking at some of the place names a little bit around the country as much as we can and just the ridings itself is a nice one because historically yorkshire was divided into three ridings and a ridings part of the viking legacy of the area it comes from the old norse trithing That's what it became in Old English. And that means third part. And because riding tripped more easily off the English-speaking tongue, tithing became riding. That's where that one comes from.
2: Uh, There's one to us both. This one's from Sophie in Bristol. Hi, Susie and Charles. I love something rides with purple. Thank you. And I've been listening avidly while painting my house. And it is successfully distracting me from all things pandemic. My favourite word is cacophony. Can you please tell me where it comes from? Is it onomatopoeic? Is it anything to do with coughing? Onomatopoeic means a word that sounds like it's... Sounds yes. like
1: it is. Yeah, it comes from the Greek for word making. Yeah. Well, do you remember a while ago we had a word that meant government by the worst of citizens, which was a cacistocracy, as opposed to an aristocracy, which at the beginning was government by the best of citizens. That was the idea. So cacos is Greek for bad. And phonos or phonic meant sound that will give us euphonious and symphony and even telephone sound from far away. So a cacophony was simply bad sound. It is slightly onomatopoeia, but that wasn't the inspiration for its coining, if that makes sense.
2: We spoke of onomatopoeia and Colin Clark from Illinois, one of our international listeners, has been in touch. For some reason, I still remember my Catholic grammar school Latin teacher, an eccentric (laughs) Irish priest, saying in the mid-1960s that the only true example of onomatopoeia is piss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of I
1: get that it is very automatic, but what what do you do with the per? I don't think I've ever. Yeah, I can get the spit, but what about the pps? I'm not sure it's truly 100% automatic. I think I might take issue with oh, the oh,
2: very good, eccentric s- priest. Oh, slightly. Uh, well, I quite like that, and I discovered recently. I think I'm right in saying that cheers, santé, prost. That expression in Finnish, you say kippis. Kip-bis.
1: Oh, I like that. What does that mean? Does that mean health? Or that does means
2: it mean good I, I don't know. I, oh. do you know. I don't know what it means. Would any of our Finnish listeners like to be in touch, please, and tell us yes. what kippis actually means?
1: I love the sound of Finnish. Such a hard
2: language. If you want to be in touch with us, all you do is get in touch with us. You email us at purple at something else dot com. Susie, this is your moment where you introduce us to three special words, words that you think need to gain greater currency, real words.
1: Well, the first one just popped into my head this morning because I was quickly making some toast before we came on air, some toast and honey, and my toast burned, unfortunately. And I've talked before about resistentialism, which is when your toast. Always falls butter side down. Resistentialism is basically the hostility from inanimate objects. That didn't happen this time, but it was a bit fire fanged, which is another word for scorched. So if mm. you've if you burned your toast, you could just say, oh, it's fire fanged again. I, I just, like that. It just popped into my head.
2: Fire fanged, good.
1: We've talked about textiles coming from various places, toponyms. This is another toponym and it just, I find quite interesting because Tolkien, as we have said before, Giles, was, you know, vastly knowledgeable about the English language. He worked on the OED. He was a um, professor of Anglo-Saxon, etc. And Bilbo Baggins, if you've ever wondered where Bilbo comes from, a Bilbo in Old English was a sword of exceptional quality and it comes from Bilbao, Bilbao being famous for its sword blades. Ooh. So that's just a little nugget which I quite like, and this final one, it's just by as a suffix is quite useful in English. At least it has been in the past. So a roodsby was a rather rude, obnoxious person. An idlesby was a lazy one. A sneaksby was somebody who was a little bit sneaky. And a sure bee was one who was conceited
2: and full of themselves. So just add B-Y to the word. And it's brilliant. Yes,
1: I mean, honestly, the, the opportunities are endless.
2: Because So don't be a Roodsby. In Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, I know there's a line, Roodsby, be gone. And I never there understood that line. And now I've understood it. I've been there puzzling about that for half a century. This is why <laughs> I love knowing you, Susie Dent. You unravel the problems of a lifetime. You know, <laughs> when I was about 10 and first came across the word Roodsby, I thought I wanted to be, you know, prime minister. -hmm. President, King, actually, I was going. to... Powersby. Exactly, a leader, and Mm. I came across a lovely poem by my friend and neighbour Roger McGough. So my poem for this week is about it's called the leader, and um, it goes like this: I want to be the leader, I want to be the leader. Can I be the leader? Can I? I can. Promise, promise. Yippee! I'm the leader. I'm the leader. Okay, what shall we do?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's it, isn't it? That sums up the thirst for power. And you strive and you strive and it's all about the battle and then you get it and it's like, uh, oh... That's brilliant. Great Roger McGroff. I love him. Well, we really hope that you have enjoyed listening to us today, and as you can tell, we absolutely love listening to your linguistic questions, so please do keep emailing them in, or anything you feel about the programme. You can tweet us, or you can email us at purple at something else.com.
2: Good. Something rhymes with purple. It's a something else production. Produced by Lawrence Bassett, with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beal, and and he's not here today,
0: where is he again? Oh
2: golly, he Far Fang the toast.